0: You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org/students. That's lls.org/students.
1: You must a kiss, just a kiss. A kiss. A kiss.
0: Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or Forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. And this is another episode in our ongoing series, Fake News Fact Checking Hollywood Babylon.
2: This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip.
1: It's a long way from Hollywood criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood Babylon.
0: In the first half of this season, we had special celebrity guests reading from the pages of Hollywood Babylon. This season, we are looking to the post-celebrity future in which all actors will be replaced by digital replicas, and all big-name podcast guests will be generated by artificial intelligence. So here, once again, is the anger bot, reading an edited excerpt from Hollywood Babylon.
1: By all accounts, a joyous bisexual with an appetite for many loves, Merlena Dietrich kept the magpies chirping right through the 30s. Her passel of girlfriends was dubbed Marlena's sewing circle. They were not lesbians, but good-time Charlene's who, like Marlena, swung both ways. Marlena was ascribed a passionate affair with fellow Paramount star, Claudette Colbert, as well as one with Lily D'Amita. The vision of Marlena in a man's tuxedo proved irresistible to certain members of the international set. Author S. Mercedes Ducosta and millionaire S. Joe Carstairs, both of whom were very much at home in masculine attire themselves. They made pilgrimages to Hollywood to pay their respects to the Blue Angel. It was in 1932, while her sewing circle was forming, that Marlena started wearing man drag off screen. A nationwide vogue, Women in Slacks, was launched. The ambisex allure of Marlena in man-drag was magnified by her Svengali, Joseph von Sternberg, who managed to include a scene of her dressed as a man in each of the films they made together. That their affair was a romance of the head, of art and artifice, there is no doubt. Mrs. von Sternberg, Risa Royce, disapproved, and filed for divorce, naming Marlena as responsible for alienating the affections of my husband,
0: Anger's main claims here are that Marlena Dietrich had affairs with Claudette Colbert and Errol Flynn's wife, Lily Damita, that Mercedes de Costa and Joe Carstairs came to Los Angeles specifically to meet Dietrich, and that Dietrich's affair with director Joseph von Sternberg prompted his wife to file for divorce. None of these things are total anger inventions, and for once— most of what he claims here has been well-documented. Marlena Dietrich was, by all accounts, a joyous bisexual with an appetite for many loves. She did definitely have an affair with Mercedes de Costa, and apparently also one with Joe Carstairs, who dressed like the 1930s idea of a male sailor and had tattoos to match. Dietrich's relationship with Hearst-Vengali director Joseph von Sternberg was, was by some reports never consummated, but he was certainly obsessed with her, and his wife, Risa Royce, did name Marlena in her divorce suit. Although in fleeing that marriage, Risa was also fleeing a long-term pattern of sadism on the part of her husband that predated the entrance of Dietrich into their lives. I've chosen to center this episode on what seems to be anger's most controversial claim— that Marlena Dietrich, an actress whose gender-fluid on-screen persona in the 1930s all but transparently announced her off-screen bisexuality, enjoyed a passionate affair with Claudette Colbert, an actress remembered for a number of extremely heteronormative, conventionally feminine roles, and who was publicly devoted to one husband for more than 30 years. In discussing this alleged affair, we have the opportunity to examine how two major actresses took extremely different approaches to presenting their sexuality publicly and practicing it privately. We will begin today by summarizing who Marlena Dietrich was before she arrived in Hollywood and how she developed and presented her persona over the first years of her stardom, leading up to 1935 the year in which photo evidence was created that some have interpreted as proof of the dalliance between Dietrich and Colbert. Then we will go back to trace Colbert's career and relationships, exploring the possibility of the Dietrich affair and putting it into the context of Colbert's life. Join us, won't you, for the story of Marlena Dietrich and Claudette Colbert. There are a lot of books that touch on Marlena Dietrich's sexuality as a component of her film persona. The one book that I've read that is almost solely about Dietrich's sex life and the sex lives of Greta Garbo, Tallulah Bankhead, and other women who loved women in 1930s Hollywood and New York is called The Girls. This book is what I'll call a work of informed speculation the author, Diana McClellan, takes facts and rumors and creates imaginative bridges between them. Reading it, you get the sense that if the author found any scrap of evidence as to a lesbian affair enjoyed by Dietrich with a star as big as herself, she would have inflated that scrap into a full-fledged narrative. Certainly, there are parts of the book where she seems to be doing this about Dietrich, and even more so, Garbo. It seems worth noting that this book does not discuss an affair or even a meeting between Dietrich and Claudette Colbert. It makes no mention of Colbert in the context of bisexuality or lesbianism. Other folk tales that have become perceived as fact through constant retelling do make it into this book, but there is nary a mention of even rumors that Dietrich had even the briefest of dalliances with Colbert it seems like there just wasn't enough there to even hang an embellished narrative on, at least at the time of publication in the year 2000. As we'll see, some information, not evidence exactly, but information, would come out, so to speak, very shortly after. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else and they ask me how I feel about it and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel and a lot of the time my answer is nope because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors big and small. When we keep them bottled up it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes but therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash YMRT. Marlena became an international star thanks to her collaboration with director Joseph von Sternberg, an Austrian who grew up between Vienna and New York City and had risen from working at a lace factory to being well-regarded as one of the most creatively distinctive directors of the late silent era. In 1929, von Sternberg came to Berlin at the request of actor Emil Jannings, who had won the first Best Actor Oscar as the star of Sternberg's The Last Command. Jannings needed a new director for a German film he had agreed to make, called The Blue Angel, and he begged Sternberg to do it. So Sternberg and his wife, an American wannabe actress named Riza, got on a boat. Sternberg cast Dietrich in The Blue Angel as Lola Lola, a cabaret star who seduces and destroys Yonning's bourgeois professor, after seeing her in a play in which she projected what he described as cold disdain. Sternberg, who was in Berlin with his wife, instantly fell in obsessive love with Dietrich. Together, they would produce some of the best and most adult Hollywood films of the 1930s, all of them about sex and power, all of them a product of the director and star's unique, emotionally sadomasochistic relationship. This relationship was highly productive, but also destructive on both sides. As Sternberg wrote 40 years later, eroticism has next to no conscience and makes hasty decisions. Marlena became one of the first new superstars of the sound era. From the moment it was unveiled in Berlin, the Blue Angel was a sensation, as monumental for the European film industry as a symbol of the transition away from silent cinema as the jazz singer had been in America. And Marlena who had had a live singing career before she made talking movies and was easily able to act with her voice and to work with microphones, was instantly recognized as a natural for the developing new form. She didn't like to talk about her pre-Sternberg career once she became a star, but Dietrich had been a known figure in the Berlin theater and film scene of the mid to late 1920s. She had affairs with women and men during this time. She married a man named Rudy Sieber, who liberated her from an unhappy family and legitimized the birth of her daughter Maria in 1924. But Rudy was not necessarily the child's father. Though Marlena and Rudy would remain legally married for decades, after the first few months of their relationship, they never shared a bed. And after two years, Marlena stopped wearing a wedding ring. For most of their marriage, Rudy lived with his own mistress. Marlena was having many affairs, but the book The Girls unfolds an elaborate theory that Maria was fathered by Otto Katz, a Czech communist who would become an important anti-Nazi activist, and who would later show up in Hollywood trying to rally film folk to the anti-fascist cause. He showed up briefly in our episode on Dorothy Parker in the Blacklist series. After shooting The Blue Angel in Berlin, 28-year-old Marlena was brought to Hollywood by Paramount to continue her collaboration with von Sternberg in films made for the American market. On arrival, she was heralded by headlines as that studio's answer to Garbo. This meant that she was a European import but also indicated that she would present to audiences an exotic, difficult-to-define sexuality. Her Hollywood handlers were partly responsible for the mixed messages she delivered. When Dietrich first landed in New York en route to Hollywood, the Paramount representative who came to meet her took notice of her drab gray suit and told her to change into a black dress and fur coat so that Americans seeing photographs of her for the first time wouldn't think she was a lesbian. Much of the crux of the girls is that Garbo and Dietrich had been sexually involved with one another in the mid-1920s in Berlin, an involvement which allegedly ended when Dietrich was indiscreet about their involvement, which led a hurt Garbo to totally shut Dietrich out of her social life. The author claims this falling out meant that when Dietrich arrived in Hollywood in 1930, she was not able to tap into the crew of European expats that Garbo moved with. But other authors, with a better sense of film history, point to the role von Sternberg played in isolating Dietrich and controlling her life. Another Paramount man, Walter Wanger, had insisted on taking Dietrich out to a nightclub during her brief stopover in New York. There she observed the Prohibition-era practice of pouring booze under the table. And there, the married wanger, who had told Marlena his wife wasn't joining them because she was sick, made a pass at Dietrich on the dance floor. Marlena decided that night that Americans were hypocrites, and she became fully convinced that the only person looking out for her best interests in Hollywood was Joseph von Sternberg. So Marlena submitted to Sternberg's absolute control. It doesn't appear that she had trouble making friends. She pretty much immediately started sleeping with actress Kay Francis and singing actor Maurice Chevalier. The latter may have began as a studio setup to safely send the message that Marlena was a heterosexual in the absence of her husband, but Chevalier, at least, fell in real love. As we discussed last week, she was thwarted in her attempt to seduce Gary Cooper on the set of the film Morocco. But on camera in that film, Dietrich would make, perhaps, her boldest declaration yet of her pansexuality. Morocco features a famous scene in which, as part of a nightclub act, Dietrich strolls out dressed in men's evening wear, complete with top hat and tails. At first, the audience, made up of rich swells and drunk foreign legion fighters, boos her. One of those legionnaires, a quiet Gary Cooper, drinks her in, uncomfortably aroused, Then, as Marlena quietly, admiringly looks on, Cooper defends her honor within the crowd, threatening other men with a bottle to cut out their heckling or else. I would play you a clip of this, but without the visuals, it would sound like a cacophony. Von Sternberg, worried about his actress's thick German accent, deliberately directed Morocco as though it was a silent film with some dialogue but much of the story was conveyed through imagery. Anyway, Dietrich then sings a song in French and, at the invitation of a fat cat patron, hops a little railing to mingle with his group at their front row table. With the man's glass of champagne in her hand, she openly ogles a woman at the table and then plucks a flower from behind the woman's ear.
2: May I have this? Of course.
0: The laughter you hear from the crowd is in response to Morocco's most famous provocation. After Marlena takes the woman's flower, Dietrich plants a playful kiss on the young lady's mouth. With this, she wins over the largely male crowd, who now feel liberated to see her drag show as a joke and to not be threatened by it. And in future scenes of the movie... Dietrich will be dressed in conventional feminine attire, often with her miles of legs out for the ogling. But the sexual politics of Morocco only get more complicated and dangerous. Dietrich's Amy Jolly has a rich man who wants to marry her, to liberate her from the supposedly demeaning world of the cabaret. But she can't quiet her obsessive lust for Gary Cooper's legionnaire who spends most of the movie playing hard to get. In a flip of standard Hollywood gender dynamics, he retreats and she plays the standard male role of pursuer, ultimately giving up everything to follow him into the desert on what might be a suicide mission. Morocco was a massive hit, and Dietrich was nominated for an Oscar. The film gave audiences permission to idolize and sexualize Marlena Dietrich, even while broadcasting the fact that she would muddle conventional gender roles. Paramount gave her an extraordinarily lucrative contract, stipulating that she would be required to make just two films a year for a payout of a quarter million dollars per 12 months. About the equivalent of four and a half million dollars today. Now that she would be working in Los Angeles for a while, Marlena went back to Berlin to pick up her daughter. Her husband settled in Paris with his girlfriend. Marlena and Maria moved into a house Sternberg had selected in Beverly Hills. Though technically Sternberg was still married, all of Hollywood believed that he and Marlena were living together and photographic evidence suggests that the director spent a lot of time at Marlena's house and functioned as a sort of surrogate dad for Maria. But there are disputes as to the actual nature of the Dietrich Sternberg relationship, particularly in terms of sex. She seems to have enjoyed playing a domestic-slash-mothering role to some extent, and he definitely seems to have gotten something out of her withholding and denying his sexual satisfaction. During this period, no one was able to contact Dietrich without going through Sternberg, and he forbid her from going to Hollywood parties or nightclubs such as the Coconut Grove unless she had to for publicity purposes. Dietrich would, for the entirety of her life, believe having ceded her freedom to define herself to Sternberg was worth it. As she would write, He created me. The eye behind the camera, the eye that loves the creature whose image will be captured on film, is the creator of the wondrous effect that emanates from this being. That effect is a combination of technical and psychological knowledge and pure love. But Dietrich changed herself, too. She lost an enormous amount of weight after arriving in Hollywood, of her own volition, because she didn't like how she looked in comparison to American actresses. And she maintained her new weight by essentially not eating. And she absorbed everything Sternberg did, technically and creatively, to mold the way she looked on camera, to the point that she would instruct future directors how she should be lit. The bond between Dietrich and Sternberg was so public that Sternberg's wife, Risa Royce, couldn't help but respond.
2: This episode is brought to you by Mubi, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on Mubi is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon, who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride.
0: Though she has been painted by most history as a vindictively jealous wife, in fact, Riza and Joe’s marriage had been dysfunctional from the start, and she had already made two gestures at filing for divorce before Dietrich was ever in the picture. Riza told her girlfriends that she learned on her honeymoon that Sternberg was impotent. On the same trip, an ocean voyage to Europe in bad weather, Riza’s new husband seized her coat. And gave it to his mother. He promised his wife he'd buy her a new coat, but he didn't. Risa had been trying to act before marrying the director, but instead of casting her in one of his films, Sternberg constantly berated his wife and told her she'd never be a star with a nose like hers. Then Sternberg met Dietrich, and two years later, according to Risa, he asked his wife for a divorce. Typical of Sternberg's sadism, he waited to make the request until just after Riza had returned from the plastic surgeon, who had operated on her nose. At the urging of her friends, Riza signed powerful divorce lawyer Moses H. Grossman to represent her in an alimony case. They did serve Marlena with papers, in April 1931, naming her as the cause of Sternberg's alienated affections. Riza was asking for $500,000 in her alienation of affection suit, which specifically charged that Mr. von Sternberg had allowed Miss Dietrich to use his charge accounts and that he paid her rent, both of which was true, and another $100,000 in a libel suit, which charged that Dietrich had disparaged Riza as an undutiful wife in an interview with an Austrian newspaper, a charge I can't prove and which I haven't seen evidence that anyone else tried to. But these secondary suits were only made public because Riza had to take Sternberg to court in August 1931 because he had failed thus far to pay alimony and in fact said he would refuse to do so unless Riza dropped the cases involving Dietrich. Through her attorney, Dietrich implied that she believed the suits were part of Risa's attempt at extortion to force Sternberg's hand in the financial settlement. Obviously, by now, it had turned into an Ouroboros. Ultimately, Sternberg would be fined $200 by the court and Riza would collect just $150,000, plus a quarter of Sternberg's art collection, which would turn out to be much more valuable. Though Sternberg was now single, he and Dietrich did nothing to legitimize their relationship. If anything, 1932 would be the year in which they would start to break apart. Facing a severe, depression-related slump, Paramount began the year desperate for a hit, and they asked Sternberg to concoct a film for Dietrich that they could sell to the working-class female audience. The result was Blonde Venus, an insane work of depression exploitation, in which Marlena would play the mother to a young boy and wife of a crippled scientist who goes to work in a nightclub in order to support her family. In one of the most, um, memorable scenes in any Marlena Dietrich film, She performs a cabaret act in a gorilla suit, which she strips off piece by piece, then puts on a white Afro wig to sing a song about voodoo. She does all of this in front of a chorus line of anonymous black dancers carrying spears and shields. Or they're what look like anonymous black dancers, as far as I can tell, These performers were not credited by name, and no one documented at the time whether they were actual black women or white dancers in full-body makeup, which some writers have inferred them to be. Either way, it's not what we would today call a woke look. In the audience watching this number is Marlena's character's future sugar daddy, played by Cary Grant. But when her husband finds out how his wife is paying for his medical treatments, she's forced to go on the lam and ends up journeying through the Depression south, moving down the country vertically as she moves towards her own rock bottom. I love Blonde Venus. Sternberg and Dietrich hated it because they thought they were selling out to make the studio happy. And then the studio wasn't even happy— Because critics were disgusted by the movie, New York Times reviewer Dwight McDonald called it perhaps the worst ever made, and audiences didn't go see it. As a result, Sternberg refused to make the next film Paramount set for Marlena, Song of Songs, and she was forced to work with a new director, Ruben Mamoulian. She also had an affair with her co-star, Brian Ahern, and another with her female co-star in Shanghai Express, Anna May Wong, and also that year reportedly rekindled things with Maurice Chevalier. Sternberg's dominance had clearly slipped. After that, Marlena went to Europe, and a lovesick Sternberg wooed her back with the promise to cast her in a film about Catherine the Great. The Scarlet Empress was another masterpiece, and another commercial failure. No one was going to see sumptuous historical biopics in 1934, a year in which the highest grossing movie was The Merry Widow, a light operetta starring Marlena's sometime boyfriend Chevalier, and other major hits included a Tarzan sequel, the first musical built around the team of Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, The Gay Divorcee, and It Happened One Night, which we'll talk about in the second half of this episode. Sternberg and Dietrich would make just one more film together, and by mid-1935, their partnership was over. Dietrich would now, for the first time, start going to Hollywood parties and mingling freely with other stars her age. This break with Sternberg put her in the right place and right time to meet Claudette Colbert. Claudette had been dubbed Legs Colbert by columnist Walter Winchell way back in the late 1920s, during her years on Broadway. During this time, Colbert secretly married an actor she appeared in a play with, Norman Foster. She kept the marriage secret because she was afraid of her highly critical mother's disapproval. Colbert and Foster both signed to Paramount, and in 1930, moved to Los Angeles. She worked, but did not become a star until Cecil B. DeMille asked her, how would you like to play the wickedest woman in the world? In the epic The Sign of the Cross, a nude Colbert would be filmed in a bath of milk, a rare glimpse of explicit sexuality on screen, which became one of the most notorious images of the pre-code era. On the set of that film... Colbert swiftly discovered the dark side of playing a sexualized character. Her co-star was Frederick March. Freddie March was the worst womanizer I ever knew, Colbert said later. His hands had 20 fingers, I swear, and they were always on my ass. Tired of being groped, Colbert finally threatened March that if he continued, she would tell on him. She did, But March didn't stop. He even cupped her butt cheek while the pair were shooting publicity photos. And one of those photos made it into print with the leering caption, Freddie March seems to have the situation well in hand. After that, Claudette burst into the Paramount Publicity Office and demanded approval of all still publicity photographs in which she was featured. This would become standard procedure for stars but Colbert was the first to get it. She would go on to exert unusual control for her era over how she was photographed, only from the left side, as well as styled and made up. No studio creation was she. Claudette Colbert designed her own look and insisted that it not be deviated from, no matter what part she was playing or what the director or the studio might have in mind. Two years later, Colbert would win an Oscar for starring opposite Clark Gable in the quintessential 1930s romantic comedy It Happened One Night, in which Colbert played a girlish heiress who goes on the lam and ends up falling in love with Gable's brash newspaper reporter. Colbert, still married to Foster but not living with him, had an affair with Gable on set, She finally divorced Foster when she fell in love with a surgeon who she consulted for sinus troubles. Dr. Jack Pressman would remain married to Colbert from Christmas Eve, 1935, until he died. To some extent, they lived separate lives. Pressman never accompanied Colbert to movie premieres, but Colbert was devoted to her husband, enough to refrain from affairs while they were married, although she contemplated a few. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, Head to netsuite.com/remember. 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 By the mid 1950s, Colbert was mostly living in New York, where she filmed a lot of television parts, while Pressman stayed back in Los Angeles, where he was still employed as a doctor at UCLA. The plan was that when he was forced by UCLA to retire at age 67, he would move to be with his wife full-time. In 1961, Claudette retired from movies and moved to Barbados. With her husband far away, Colbert lived next door to her best friend, a woman named Verna Hull. The two women were so close that outsiders assumed they were romantically involved. Pressman hated Hull and referred to her as the monster. But he allowed his wife to live next door to this monster for six years, while he was mostly elsewhere. In 1967, when Pressman finally retired and moved to Barbados, he was already sick with cancer. Hull and Colbert had a massive falling out while Claudette's husband was on his deathbed, and when he finally succumbed in early 1968... Colbert was devastated. Within a couple of years, she began dividing her time between Paris, Manhattan, and Barbados. She returned to the stage, she got her neck lifted. After Pressman died, Colbert didn't like to be alone, and she would often invite friends to stay with her wherever she was living. In 1984, Helen O'Hagan officially moved into Claudette's two-bedroom apartment in Manhattan. O'Hagan was 27 years younger than Colbert, and she categorized their relationship as like mother and daughter. Claudette hadn't been able to have kids. She and Pressman had started trying too late. When Colbert had a stroke in 1993, her surrogate daughter retired early to take care of her. When Colbert died... She left the Barbados estate to O'Hagan, who sold it to David Geffen. Anger is vague in Hollywood Babylon, but his wording implies that Dietrich and Colbert were involved sometime around 1932. This would have been shortly after Colbert's arrival in Los Angeles, while she was essentially estranged from her secret husband, and just as the first cracks in the Dietrich-Sternberg partnership were starting to show, allowing the actress to embark on other affairs. So, it's possible. But I think it's more likely that it happened, if it did happen, in 1935, after Dietrich had fully broken with Sternberg and began to mingle freely at events that were photographed for posterity, and more often, publicity. Most gossip about Colbert and Dietrich's supposed affair centers on a photograph taken of the actresses together at a party hosted by Carol Lombard in 1935 at an amusement park then set up on the Venice Beach boardwalk. The photo shows the two actresses posed on a slide together, Claudette holding Marlena's legs around her own. According to a gossip reporter on the scene, Actresses shed their glamour at the event by dressing casually. Marlena Dietrich, it was noted, took the fashion trend of trousers one step further by wearing shorts. Shorts are not my forte, Colbert was said to have said before she, quote, seized Miss Dietrich and the two went down the the shoot-the-shoot together. It would not have been unheard of for the writer of a story like this to invent quotes to match the photo spread. Both women appear to be laughing in this photograph, but they don't appear to be moving, meaning they might have been posed in this position by the photographer, as one friend of Colbert's would claim after her death. That friend added, Anyway, Marlena and Claudette didn't even like each other. Dietrich described her as that ugly Claudette Colbert, so shop girl French. This quote appeared in a Vanity Fair article published a few years after Colbert's death, which reprinted the photograph across a full page, and in the same story, two of Claudette's living friends totally shut down the gossip about a dalliance with Dietrich. Other friends in the story note that Colbert didn't like talking about sex, which, of course, may have been because she wanted to keep her private life private. But the primary idea delivered in the piece by people who knew her is that after her 20s, she really had no sex life to speak of. As one friend recalled, Claudette loved to flirt with men, but she liked women for companionship. The women in Claudette's life were never lovers. They were more like ladies-in-waiting. Claudette was always curious about everyone else's sex life, but for her it was like listening to fairy tales. I wondered whether it wasn't to compensate for the fact that there was really nothing going on in her own life. But another friend of Colbert's, Robert Shaw, a gay man who wrote television programs the actress appeared in in the 1950s, said after the publication of the Vanity Fair article that he was, quote, quite sure that Dietrich and Colbert had been intimate before Colbert married Pressman. Shaw also said that after Pressman died, the actress had told her friends to treat Helen O'Hagan, who categorized herself as Claudette's surrogate daughter, the same way they would treat her spouse. Another supposed friend, who went unnamed in a book about gays in Hollywood called Behind the Screen, said that in the days when all of queer Hollywood used to congregate at George Cukor's house, quote, It was taken for granted that she was gay, or at least, not conventionally straight. This quote points to a source of my frustration, reading texts that attempt to out people who died without making any public declarations about their own sexuality beyond engaging in heterosexual marriage while they were alive. If we can understand that sexuality is a spectrum and that it's possible to fall on a thousand different points within that spectrum, is there any point in trying to nail down a dead person as having been definitively gay or definitively straight, especially if they lived during a time when few people lived out lives, even in Hollywood? Especially since we can't know how a person would have chosen to present themselves, if they had lived in a time when they could have been transparent about the true nuance of their sexuality without repercussions. Especially since that time, when it is okay to be transparent about such things, has maybe just begun for the youngest generations, but for a lot of people, probably hasn't really begun yet at all. I think in a lot of cases, it is futile and even harmful to try to prove who long-dead people really had sex with and to try to reconstruct their identities based on what could have been a one-nighter that may or may not have really happened. So why have I done this whole podcast episode doing just that? I could complain that Kenneth Anger made me do it, which is sort of true, but I think I'm also fascinated by the idea that two women who possibly had some kind of intimate relationship with one another living at the same time and place in history, could have had such radically different attitudes toward their respective sexualities, with one leaving absolutely no doubt that she enjoyed relationships with men and women, and the other inspiring even her own friends to engage in a game of guessing and speculation. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. This episode was edited by Cameron Drews. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, you must rememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with information about our sources, music used, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThispod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too and my book Seduction: Sex, Lies and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood is available now from Amazon or your local independent bookstore. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. And I'm
1: Okay, for